What is wisdom? Are you wise? Every society throughout history has prized wisdom in one way or another. Every culture or people group has put forth a set of ideas or precepts around how we should best live in this world. You see, that's all wisdom is really. Wisdom is the application of knowledge so that we might live in a way that's most fitting or appropriate. It isn't just knowledge. You see, you can have all the knowledge in the world and still be a fool. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing that you shouldn't put it in a fruit salad. (laughs) You see, I think this is actually a helpful demonstration of how we tend to view wisdom. You don't put tomatoes in fruit salads if you want to be happy. (laughs) It's not fitting or appropriate for tomatoes to go in fruit salads. Yes, they are technically a fruit, but do you want to live a meaningful life? Now, this is a very small example, but we all subscribe to different views of wisdom that will shape how we live our life and ultimately how we spend eternity. The brand of wisdom that we subscribe to will have immeasurable effects on our lives and the lives of people around us, either for better or for worse. And what we'll see today is that what some people call wisdom is in fact foolish. Maybe you subscribe to the wisdom espoused by the Buddhist monks. You see, the monks recognize that life is marked by suffering, and therefore they suggest that the best way to live is to resign yourself from all passions and desires. So for the Buddhist monk, the only desire they really have is to have no desires. Maybe you just love postmodern philosophy. You see, that word philosophy is made up of two Greek words, phileo and sophos. Phileo just means love, and sophos means wisdom. So a philosopher is a lover of wisdom. I I remember when I was at at uni, my lecturers, they just loved postmodernism. And philosophers like Jacques Derrida were considered sages among men. Um, And maybe you're the same. Maybe you like his ideas too. Maybe for you, there is no grand overarching narrative that objectively speaks to all people. Maybe for you, truth is relative and subjective. It's something that I determine for myself. That view of wisdom will shape how you live. Wisdom affects our view of things like government. Philosophers like Karl Marx have posited how they think government should operate. You see, he developed the ideas of communism. But his wisdom has resulted in the deaths of a hundred million people in the last century. You see, your view of wisdom can have dire consequences. Marx's precepts and ideas around how government should operate have caused some of the greatest horrors our world has seen. And I think to any reasonable person, his wisdom should rightly be labeled foolish. So let me ask us again, are you wise? Are you truly wise? Are you sure that the way you're living is the most fitting or appropriate way to live in this world? Will our wisdom have dire consequences for us in the long run, either for ourselves or the people around us? Are we truly wise or is our wisdom the kind of wisdom that will ultimately be shown to be foolish? Today, James is going to show us that ultimately, there are only two 
view two kinds of wisdom, two categories of wisdom. First, there's the kind of wisdom that recognizes who God is and responds in obedient, peace-loving humility. Secondly, there is every other kind of so-called wisdom that does not take into account God or what God has to say. And this second type of wisdom is ultimately foolish. Worldly wisdom, that second point on your study. First, I want you to see that the kind of wisdom our world promotes, I want you to see what it says, and I want you to see that it's evil. Look with me at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3. It says this. But if you have envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Here we see James explains to us that there is a kind of wisdom that is completely opposite to the way of Christ. And this wisdom, James is going to show us, is ultimately demonic. You see, James shows us a kind of wisdom that has its root in what he calls bitter envy and selfish ambition. That first group of words, bitter envy, speaks of a kind of jealous desire. It's a kind of desire that's driven from jealousy, a want for other people's things. And that second group of words, selfish ambition, is the attitude that seeks what's best for yourself, often regardless of what might be good for others. And really, this attitude is at the core of all worldly wisdom. We see it so clearly today, don't we? Um, The mantra of our generation is, do what makes you happy. If it feels good, do it. The world is your oyster. You can be whatever you want to be. Don't change for anyone. If you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. (laughs) You see, we live in a radically individualistic culture. Everyone gets to write their own script. And it's wrong to tell anyone that their beliefs or choices are immoral. Do what makes you happy. Life is about following your heart. I said to my wife the other day, I said, what's that movie where there's like a couple and then someone else comes along and one of them runs off because they decide to just follow their heart? And she was like, oh, are you thinking of my best friend's wedding with Julia Roberts or Maid of Honor? Or maybe you're thinking of Twilight or my best friend's girl or something borrowed or Bride Wars. And then she was like, oh, maybe you're thinking of friends where Ross and Emily are going to get married and Rachel goes over to England and ruins their wedding. (laughs) All that to say, our culture is enamored with the message to give in to your desires. Follow your heart and do what makes you happy. I think this is why as a society, sex is no longer reserved for marriage or limited to one man and one woman. I think this is also why you see 30-year-old dudes still living at home waiting for their YouTube gaming career to take off. (laughs) This view of wisdom, do what makes you happy, will shape how we live. But look with me now at how James describes this kind of wisdom. He uses three punchy adjectives to describe this view of life. Look at verse 15 together with me. He says, Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. That first word, earthly, speaks of a kind of wisdom that shuts out God. It limits its scope to merely just the things that we can see, just the things of this world. 
It isn't earthly in a neutral sense, but it represents a kind of shutting out of God. It evaluates and considers how we should live without giving enough consideration to who God is and what God has to say. And this kind of wisdom gives too much consideration to what the world has to say. And how often do we see that? How often do we see the world, the society around us, dictating how we should live? Secondly, James calls it unspiritual. Your translation might say natural. The idea behind that word is is that this is opposite to the spiritual. This is opposite to the supernatural. This isn't the type of wisdom that proceeds from the Spirit of God. Rather, it comes from our passions, our natural desires. That's what unspiritual natural is getting at. It's a type of wisdom where we follow our own heart and do what we want. It's the sort of wisdom that's driven by what our nature desires. And ultimately, James tells us that this kind of wisdom is demonic. He says that this wisdom is demon-inspired. It's exactly how the devil wants you to live. Now, as you've listened to my description of worldly wisdom, you might be asking yourself, like, is it really that bad? I mean, demonic, that's quite a harsh criticism. Um, I'm just doing what makes me happy, right? In the next sentence, James tells us why this harsh criticism is so appropriate. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3 with me. He says, For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. You see, what James is saying is that where this kind of wisdom is practiced, this do-what-makes-you-happy approach to life, where this wisdom is lived out, there will be disorder and every evil practice. Now, as you hear that, maybe you're thinking, hmm, a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? Like, doing what makes me happy will lead to every kind of evil practice. But I want you to see that, yes, this kind of wisdom does indeed produce every evil practice. Um, for example, our society has attempted to take this principle and apply it to human sexuality. Right now, our culture is in the middle of a sexual revolution. The way we value and treat sex is being flipped on its head. And one of the results of this is that we're now being told that all of our sexual proclivities, all of our sexual tendencies are good and right. We're encouraged to live out our desires, to embrace them. If it feels good, do it. You were born that way. Um, I'm sure most of you remember a few years ago that Macklemore song, Same Love. It was like crazy popular. If I remember right, it was top of the charts for like quite a few weeks. Um, But the chorus of that song says these words, I can't change, even if I tried, even if I wanted to. That's the sentiment of our culture. And I think because of this, we've allowed lots of evil to happen under the guise of we're born this way. We can't change even if we tried, even if we wanted to. Maybe you haven't seen this before, but greed and sex are actually really closely connected. The 10th commandment, for example, says don't covet your neighbor's stuff or your neighbor's wife. The the two are connected, coveting greed 
and our desire for other people go together. And I think we see that in society today. A lot of the way we see greed is that people want to have and use other people's bodies in a way that it's not been given to them. And I think this principle has caused lots of evil to happen in our society that we've allowed. Let me give you some examples of how this principle, follow your heart, do what makes you happy. Let me give you some examples of how this principle has caused great evil in our society. Firstly, I think as a society, this idea of follow your heart is a huge reason why so many people walk out of their marriages. It's the reason why children have to grow up without a dad. It's the reason why, even in my life, I've heard people encouraged to leave their marriage and go be with the latest person who's come along. And it's sad and it hurts. And in God's sight, it's evil. I think you also see this in the way that us as a society has changed our view on human sexuality. I think now, generally in society, the definition of marriage has been changed and expanded to include relationships that weren't previously included. Homosexuality is celebrated and praised. And as a society, we have changed our view of human sexuality because of this principle. Do what makes you happy. And then finally, I think we see it in our society's acceptance of things like abortion. Um, The sad truth is, a lot of the time, we as a society allow children to be killed because it will be more convenient for the parents. Maybe they have ambition to go to uni or work. And it's sad, as a society, this principle applied has caused evil. But the thing is, our society isn't consistent with itself because it says, if you're born that way, then do it. But the inconsistency is that as a society, we apply that to human sexuality, but we don't apply it to other things. I mean, imagine you were born here in New Zealand, but 300 years ago. Things would have been very different. It was tribal, there were wars. And imagine a boy was born who had a natural tendency, a proclivity towards aggression and violence. 300 years ago, that would have been something that was praised and encouraged. That boy would have been encouraged to foster that, um, grow that aggression and desire and anger and become a great warrior or a chief of some sort. Follow your desires. You're made that way. Same principle, but in a different society, it looks very different. Because if that boy was born here today, we'd be encouraging him to suppress that aggression, temper that. And if he grew up and started living out that aggression and said, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to, would put him in prison. That's just the reality of it. And here is the great inconsistency of the world's wisdom. It says, do what makes you happy, follow your desires. But that principle, consistently lived out, will produce disorder and every evil practice. The problem is, at the moment, we only apply it to human sexuality, but not to aggression and anger. You see, my brother, I've got a twin brother, if you didn't know, um, but he's a prison guard at New Zealand's only maximum security prison. And his prison is filled with people 
who have done things that are so like horrible and scary that it might even make you sick to the stomach like just to see the things that these men have done. But if you were to hang around them as they did what made them happy, as they followed their selfish ambition and bitter envy, you'd tremble. And I know that James isn't exaggerating when he says disorder and every evil practice. And if you're anything like me, then you're no better than the prisoners I've just mentioned. You see, I've had plenty of wicked thoughts in my life, plenty of evil thoughts. There's been times I've wanted to steal things. I've been tempted to illegally stream the boxing when I didn't want to pay to watch it. Um, And like just in life, there's been dozens of times when I've honestly just wanted to smash someone. Like for real. And I suspect likewise, you've had some pretty wicked desires too. Now, we're pretty lucky to live in a society that loosely values Christian morality and has a lot of Christian values enshrined in its laws. And in many ways, those laws do restrain our wicked desires. But what would you do if they weren't there? What would you do if you lived in a society that praised your inward wicked tendencies? I think often we're restrained more by our cowardice than we are by by our benevolence. Often it's our fear that restrains us from doing evil things more than it is our goodness. In chapter 4, James fleshes out a little bit more of what this looks like. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? We've seen that bitter envy and selfish ambition is the cause of every evil practice. Now James is going to show us that This way of living, this philosophy, this wisdom, is also the cause of all conflict. You see, James asks the question, what is the source of wars and fights among you? And then he gives us his diagnosis. Essentially, he says this, they come from our passions that are at war within us. That word passion speaks of our inward desires, our appetites, the lusts of our flesh. And then James shows us what this looks like. He says, Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He says, You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You see, James paints a pretty simple picture here. But the way in which this picture succinctly assesses human nature is pretty amazing. You see, the picture is this. A person has a desire or an expectation And when they don't get that desire or expectation met, they respond in a way that causes conflict with other people. I think even as Christians, we see this attitude reflected in how we pray. Firstly, envy and selfish ambition shows itself in a lack of prayer. The second half of verse 2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Envy and selfish ambition show itself in a lack of prayer. And even when we do pray, often we're tempted to treat God like our personal genie, someone who exists to grant us our every wish. Verse 3 says, You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And James says that it's this attitude that causes all conflict. I mean, picture this. 
Imagine you're driving home from work or from uni, and you hop on the motorway and you get in the right lane, and there's a dude doing 80. If you're anything like me, you have an expectation or a desire to be able to do 100 in the right lane. And this guy is preventing me from meeting my expectations in life and getting what I desire. And now he's become my enemy. Like That's how I feel in my heart. So I might tailgate him, do the little swervy thing to try to get his attention, and then like aggressively overtake him. And then imagine five minutes later, someone cuts me off, like real aggressively just cuts in front of me. Like, oh, now I have an expectation, a desire to be respected while I'm driving. <laughs> and this guy's just disrespected me. And now I'm mad. My, my anger is ignited. I'm furious. And this guy is my adversary. He's my enemy. <laughs> Beep the horn. Try to overtake him back. Cut in front of him. Give him an angry look. You see, it's just a small example. But James is right in assessing the cause of human conflict. But you see, road rage is only the beginning. If you live subject to your passions, your desires, your appetites, road rage is only the beginning. It won't stop there. James says this is the very reason we covet, it's the reason we go to war, and it's the reason we murder people. This is very serious. Now, there's a sense in which this kind of wisdom is endemic to who we are as people. Our very nature desires to live this way. Not to mention the overwhelming messages of the world and the power of the devil. But I hope you have seen that this wisdom is indeed evil. So abandon it, despise it, see it for what it is. Because there is a better way. There is a better wisdom. And that's heavenly wisdom. We're on the point called heavenly wisdom if you're following along in your studies. We're going to see that heavenly wisdom is altogether opposite to the wisdom of the world. It's everything that worldly wisdom isn't. It's the complete antithesis of this self-centered, self-seeking attitude. Heavenly wisdom comes from a place of obedient humility before God and produces peace. Look at chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 with me. It says this. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. It should first be noted that wisdom is from above. It's something that comes from God. True wisdom is something that comes from outside of us. We heard earlier in James, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 17, James says, Every generous act and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. James also instructed us earlier in this letter that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously. That's chapter 1, verse 5. You see, true wisdom comes from God. It isn't something you go up into the mountains to discover. Growing a good beard won't make you wise. You can ask my friends. (laughs) But what does it look like? James tells us that wisdom is first pure. This word speaks of an ethical blamelessness. It's not mixed in with this earthly, natural, demonic wisdom, but it's pure. 
Wisdom is something that comes from outside of us, and more than that, it comes from outside of this corrupted world. Wisdom must first be pure, because wisdom comes from God. Therefore, to be truly wise, you must begin with the recognition of who God is, an ample consideration of what God has to say. A very important proverb, uh, chapter 9, verse 10, says this. It should be on the screen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, to even begin to have wisdom, you must recognize who God is. Because, you see, if God made this world, and if we're his creatures, which we are, and if God has given us thorough instruction as to how we should live, then any form of so-called wisdom that fails to see this can only really be called foolishness. To know the best way to live in God's world, at the most basic level, we must listen to what God has to say. So wisdom must first be pure. Now, as we race through what this kind of wisdom looks like, notice with me that this wisdom is everything opposite to the world's wisdom. Look at some of those adjectives. It's peace-loving, as opposed to the never-ending strife that results from the world's wisdom. God's wisdom brings about real, lasting peace. It's gentle. It isn't forceful or oppressive. It doesn't exert its will at the expense of others. It's compliant. It's willing to submit. It's open to reason. It listens. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Like false wisdom, true wisdom is revealed by its results. But instead of producing strife and evil actions, true wisdom proves full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering. It's certain and unchanging. When society changes and 50 years from now, wisdom looks like something completely different. Heavenly wisdom will remain unshaken and unchanged. And finally, it's without pretense. It's not hypocritical. It's genuine and sincere. For the Christian, wisdom is knowing God and living according to his word. Job chapter 28 verse 28 says this. It should come up on the screen. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. And true wisdom is a great thing. To find true wisdom is the best way to live. But to embrace true wisdom is radical. And it'll look completely different to the world around you. You see, while your friends are living to get rich, you'll be living to do what pleases God. You'll spend your money differently. You'll love people, even when you're not receiving any love back. In fact, even when it costs you greatly. You'll put restrictions on how you live. You won't say certain things. You won't have sex with whoever you please. And to the world around you, you'll probably look like a fool. And it will be hard And you will fail. And when you do fail, the world will shame you and call you a hypocrite. The world will change its standards. And to the world, you'll look like a backwards fundamentalist. When all your friends and colleagues are embracing the sexual revolution, you'll be unchanging in your moral convictions. And it won't be an easy life. And by all worldly measures, you will probably be seen as worse off for having followed Jesus. 
And here we run into the paradox of Christian wisdom. How is this the most fitting and appropriate way to live in the world? How is this going to make me happy? Well, I want you to consider with me Jesus' words. In Mark chapter 8, verses 35 to 36. They should come up on the screen. It says this. Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? Jesus tells us that the way things work in God's economy is exactly opposite to what we should expect. If we live trying to save our lives, we will lose them. If we live following the world's wisdom, we will have a hollow life marked by conflict and strife. And maybe we'll get a good 80 years of gathering together as much as we can for us and our family. But at some point that will come to an end. And then you'll stand before God and all those things that you've gathered for yourself will be gone. And it will have benefited you nothing It will have benefited us nothing if we gain for ourselves the whole world, yet lose our lives forever. But if we give our lives wholly to God, we will have an important and meaningful and eternally significant life. It will be hard, but at whatever point we lose our lives, we will gain immortality and save our lives forever. Now, as we move into the last point in your studies, I want you to see that this morning we've had two views of wisdom placed before us. A wisdom that's shaped by the world, our natural desires, and the devil. The do-what-makes-you-happy wisdom, worldly wisdom. And the wisdom that lives in light of the reality that God is ruler and we are his creatures. Heavenly wisdom. And what I want us to do, friends, is just pause for a moment. And I want us to take a mental stock take. Try and figure out where you're at. What sort of wisdom is dictating how we live today? Think about maybe your last week or two weeks. Let us think together about what sort of wisdom has dictated the way we live. Has my life been marked by worldly wisdom, by conflict and strife and selfish ambition? Or has my life been marked by peace-loving humility and following God? Really try discerning yourselves what sort of wisdom has been dictating your life over the past few weeks. Imagine your life could have been recorded and you could give the video to someone to watch. What sort of wisdom would they see? Heavenly wisdom or worldly wisdom? Now, we'll fall into different categories here. But maybe we fall into the category of Christian who says, yeah, I think as I discern my life, I think my life would be marked by good conduct and wisdom's gentleness. And I think if we fall into that category, that's great. Persevere, keep at it. Now, none of us do it perfectly, but to the extent that you are seeking to live out heavenly wisdom, keep at it. Keep ignoring the messages of the world and the society around you. And keep following God. That is good and right. It is the most appropriate and fitting way to live. And as you do that, remain 
humbly dependent upon God. But maybe we fall into a different category. Maybe we're a Christian and we fall into the category of Christian who has attempted to discern where they're at. And maybe we've decided that, hey, man, as I, as I look at my life, I think I've been living primarily according to the world's wisdom. I think I've been living to get what I want. I think I've been following my selfish ambitions. If we fall into that category, the next words are for us, and they're hard words. So let us together try to listen carefully, and let us try not to harden our hearts. Read verse 4 with me. He says this, You adulterous people, adulteresses, Friends, that's how James addresses us if we're Christians in this situation. He says that we're like someone who stands before friends, family, and God and makes vows to their spouse and then leaves and goes to sleep in the bed of someone else. To God, this is repulsive. He hates it. And if we're living according to the world's wisdom, God says that that is what we are like. With our mouths, we profess allegiance to him. But by our lives, we deny those words. And we live as though those words aren't true. And that is horrible. If that's where we're at, we should stop today. Turn back. Now. If you're not a Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus, these next words also apply to you. Um, So keep reading verse 4 with me. James says this to us. He says, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Friends, the greatest consequence of embracing the world's wisdom is that you make for yourself an enemy with the living God. He made you. He gave you life. The same God who commands galaxies and stars and planets, and they all obey him. He commands us, and we disobey him time and time again. One day we will stand before God as our judge. And if he is our enemy on that day, there will be no mercy for us. Only God's fiery anger will remain. That should be frightful news. should cause us to be very afraid. If we're excluding God and his word from our decision making, from our dreams and ambitions, then we are living as though God is our enemy. And we don't want God to be our enemy on that day of judgment. Keep reading with me. Um, This is how James says we should respond. These are James's words to us. Uh, We'll read from verse 8, from the second half of verse 8. He says this, Cleanse your hands, sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Friends, we should really consider our sin. It's the holy God that we have treated like an enemy. And this reality should break us. It should cause us to weep, And mourn. As we consider our sin before God, that really should upset us. Maybe today, some of us just need to go home. We need to go to our rooms. We need to 
cry out to God and beat our chest and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. That would be good and appropriate in light of the way that we live. If we live as an enemy of God, that is good and appropriate. That's what we should do. Like a person who has broken their most sacred promises, or like a person begging for mercy before a mighty enemy, we ought to cry out to God and say, sorry, please forgive me. We ought to humble ourselves before God. To humble yourself before God means to lower yourself before God. Occupy the humiliation that goes with your sin and be there before God. In preparing this sermon, I've, I've been praying that these words would cut some of us to the heart. And, and that does hurt. I know it hurts because I've been there before. Um, and if you're there this morning, if you're this evening, if you're there in that place where these words have really cut you and hurt you, then please keep listening. Because now James has words that will heal you. James has some beautiful words to say to us. Look at chapter 4, verse 6 together with me. In fact, underline these words, memorize them, because they are beautiful. Chapter 4, verse 6 says this, But he gives greater grace. Our position before God is dire, but God gives greater grace. God gives greater grace. That word grace means an unmerited gift, a gift that you do nothing to deserve. In this situation, we deserve to be God's enemy, vanquished with infinite fury. But God gives miserable sinners gifts that we don't deserve, and that's awesome. Verses 6 and 10 should be coming up on the screen. Um, Would you keep reading these with me? James goes on to say, Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And verse 10, Humble yourself before the Lord. And he will exalt you. You see, friends, the recipients of God's grace are the humble. To be humble, again, is to recognize your lowly position before God. Realize that you've made an enemy of God and occupy that low state that is yours. And friends, the great news is is that when you do that, when you lower yourself before God, when you recognize the weight of your sin, that's exactly where God will meet you. In that lowly place of crying out for mercy, God will meet you there. He will draw near to you and he will raise you out of that place. That's what that word exalt means. It means to lift you up. If you humble yourself before God, God will lift you up. You won't spend an eternity in hell. Rather, you will spend an eternity in heaven with God forever. That is beautiful. Friends, I don't know where you're at today, but I can assure you of this. If today you go home and you cry out to God for mercy, if you humble yourself before God, you will find Jesus to be a perfect Savior. And that is great news. So let me encourage you today, friends. Humble yourself before God. Despise the world's wisdom and embrace heaven's wisdom. Let's pray.